You know, brethren, in all due respect, uh, this election cycle, as, as has been mentioned uh, before, has been quite intense, without a doubt, and it has sucked up the attention of a lot of us, uh, especially here in the United States, simply because, of course, many of us perceived, and did perceive correctly, that in all due respect, there was indeed a lot on the line with this particular cycle and with all that was in the backdrop of who indeed was in fact going to be awarded the privilege. And it is a privilege. It is a very big privilege to be able to fill the seat, the uh, role, the position of the presidency of the United States of America because in all due respect, like it or not, the world understands this too, though they may not verbalize it because they would prefer not to recognize it publicly, but it is the most powerful nation in the world, without a doubt. And we have the most powerful economy. We have some of the most powerful resources, as I mentioned a few weeks back, under our soil that has yet to be unleashed, if it could be unleashed, by virtue of rescinding many of the stranglehold regulations that we have on our resources that prevent the United States of America from actually advancing trade and so forth, exports and what have you, of those particular resources. And of course would generate much more revenue and of which would indeed uh, be very beneficial for many people because it would generate jobs. The very fact that of some of uh, President-elect Trump's rhetoric, including, which included corporate reductions in tax levels, tax rates, in that in itself is a tremendous, philosophically, if it's done, boost to the economy, dropping from 35% corporate taxes to 15. I think that's even, I don't have the statistic on hand right off the top of my head here, but I think that was lower than Ronald Reagan's uh, drop of corporate taxes when he went in in 1980. I think it's more aggressive than that. That in itself would provide, of course, if you think it through from a business standpoint, generating more revenue for the companies because that would raise their bottom line, that's the profitability, the bottom line, 20% without even increasing sales. <laughs> and that 20% can go to building factories or uh, generating jobs, which of course would generate more income into the economy and consequently uh, cause more things to be made and, of course, more things to be bought and so on. But my point in all of this, and, and I'm just kind of talking out loud here uh, with regards to some of the things that has caused us to be passionate about what the differences were in this election cycle. But election cycles are not the only things that oftentimes get our dander up or our, our blood pressure up or our passions ignited or our enthusiasm accelerated. There's a lot of things, a lot of things that cause us to, for all intents and purposes, be interested in something to the point where we're so absorbed in it that we forget ourselves. You ever get into a, something so, so much, engrossed in so much, maybe a good movie, uh, maybe a game, <laughs> uh, maybe a, a emailing, answering emails, uh, whatever it might be where, you know, you, the clock was at nine in the morning and all of a sudden you look up and it's noon. Wow, you don't even realize where all that time go. You don't even realize it, you know. And consequently, it's uh, something along the lines of uh, just interest of yours that caused you to get in what's called a flow and as a result, time goes very fast. Well, in all due respect, there are things that, as I say, cause us to forget sometimes our Christianity or put God on the back burner, causing us distractions to the point where perhaps we don't necessarily devote the time to studying our Bible the way perhaps we should. And that's what I'm driving at. I, I want to go over here to 1 Corinthians 4 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Because... We're not here, brethren, 
by accident. You're, you're not here in this room listening to this information by accident. God has opened your eyes uniquely enough to understand some things from your Bible that are very precious, very precious. And sometimes I think we don't really take the time like we should to appreciate it. Over here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul mentions this. He characterizes it as a mystery. He says, Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required stewards that a man be found faithful, faithful to those mysteries. In Romans chapter 16, just a few pages back, Romans 16, in verse 25, notice this. Now to him that is of power to establish you, according to my good news of the gospel and the preaching of Jesus, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. See, your Bible has mysteries in it. And to the point of you recognizing the difference between your understanding of what you call Christianity and what the world calls Christianity is a big chasm. That's a big, big hole between you and them. What you understand is literally the mystery that what's being talked about here has been a secret since the world began. And people, when you read that, you know, they, they don't grasp the magnitude of that. They, they don't grasp the size and scope of what we're talking about in terms of a mystery. Because they understand Christianity in a very superficial way, in a very traditional way, in a very paganistic way that has been around for a long time. So even to call the belief of an immortal soul a mystery? Come on. It's not a mystery. The Egyptians knew that. The Babylonians knew that before the Egyptians. <laughs> you know, Satan the devil advanced it back in the Garden to Eve before the Babylonians when he said, you will not die. So that's not a mystery. What is a mystery is the fact that you understand how God, how God is actually going to get you from mortality to immortality. And if you try to explain that in most cases, whether it be to your aunts and uncles, to your brothers and sisters, uh, to your parents in some cases, if your parents are not in the church, the reality of it is, is that it would sound as though you're an alien, that you're not even on planet Earth, that in all due respect, what you believe is kind of like sci-fi, because when you start talking about really what the glory of God is that he is promising you and me, it, it doesn't sound rational, because when you compare it to the traditional understandings, it is viewed as really off the rails. And so consequently, when people hear you talk like that, they say, wow, you're really out there, you know, because, man, how can that be? But here in verse 26, he goes on, but now it's made manifest by the scriptures of the prophets, of the prophets. Remember, uh, interesting point to keep in mind, there is no New Testament writer that ever quoted the New Testament. Did you ever think about that? There is no New Testament writer that ever quoted the New Testament. Why? It didn't exist. <laughs> it didn't exist. The only scriptures that existed were the prophets, the law, the Torah, and the writings. So in all due respect, what Paul is saying here to the Romans in these closing verses of the book is true. And consequently, the mystery, the mystery, brethren, of what God is doing and how he's doing it is embedded in the prophets. It's embedded in the law. It's embedded in the writings. The fact of just going back to death and the definition of death, the Old Testament is crystal clear that when you die, you go to sleep. You're in that day thoughts perish. It even talks about your hate and your love perishes. 
What does that mean? It means you're dysfunctional. You're not alive anymore. In the Psalms, in the writings, in the book of Psalms, it says there's no praise of God. So what's that do for the concept of heaven? It blows it right out of the water. That's what it does. Because if there's no praise of God, what are you doing? You're sleeping. That's what Jesus said. You're sleeping. That's all. Every time you go to bed at night, if you sleep at night, some sleep in day, but if you sleep at night, <laughs> you, you're, you're experiencing uh, a phenomena of a death-like experience. That's what your Bible says. So there's nothing really to fear about death. It's like my daughter says occasionally. It's not so much dying that I'm afraid of. It's how I'm going to die. <laughs> that's, that's the uh, disturbing aspect, you know, that associates uh, one's mind with death. But he goes on, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations, why? For the obedience of faith. Now, I want to begin to build on this idea of faith because where I'm going with this presentation today has a lot to do with dealing with with faith because if you don't have faith you're not going to be able to get where I want to take you with this presentation so follow me through this because there are indeed some things that we need to be aware of due to the fact that we have as I said been called and are here not because of an accident but because you were called and you accepted the calling and by virtue of accepting the calling, you are now in play. Now, with that being said, keep this in mind so that you don't begin to gravitate toward or drift toward an entitled attitude that there is in this case, and this should keep you from gravitating toward an entitlement attitude, and that is simply many are called, few are chosen. So... What God is warning us about is that just because you're called isn't a, a, a freebie. That's just the beginning. Just because you won the presidency, Donald Trump, doesn't mean you're going to be a good president. Doesn't mean you're really going to make it. You see what I'm saying? You've got to do something with the calling. That's important. It's important to do something with the calling. Now, over here in John 17, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, lays out some interesting considerations for all of us. And it deals with a prayer and his appeal to the Father for attention concerning certain matters that he himself is concerned about prior to his departure through this experience of death and then, of course, the conversion of him going from flesh to spirit. So he's in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few hours before he is going to be arrested here. He's praying chapter 17, which is really the real Lord's Prayer. This is the real Lord's Prayer. The other prayer that's oftentimes called the Lord's Prayer is nothing more than a, an example prayer. This is really the Lord's Prayer. He goes on, he says, I pray for them. Now, in the context of this, between this verse and I'll take you through uh, to verse uh, approximately 19, in the context, he's actually addressing his disciples, those guys that were actually there in the garden with him. But he does shift. He, he causes good reason for us to be able to extrapolate these words onto ourselves later on. You'll see that in verse 20 but I, I get ahead myself. Let me go back here to verse 9 and follow me through this. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, that is the system. I pray not for the, uh, the system. Uh, but for them which you have given me, for they are yours, and all are mine, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And now I'm no more in the world, but these are in the world. That is, these disciples, these people, these ones that you've given me, the ones that have answered the calling, they are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your own name those whom you have given me. Because, of course, the calling comes from the Father. The calling comes from the Father, and he points us to Christ. And Christ we see as the example so that we can become like the Father. So it's a very, uh, what you could say, inter- uh, intermingled in embedded relationship of us being in them and them in us as he is in him as him is in he it's all together 
It's kind of like that old Beatles song. <laughs> and we're all together. But at any rate, I digress. He says here that they may be one as we are. And that's my point. Verse 12 now. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that you gave me, I've kept. None of them are lost except the son of perdition. Why? Well, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So there is a plan. God made certain allowances, and therefore his plan became unfolded, and all things were met. But Jesus goes on, verse 13, Now I come to you. In other words, I'm going to die. I'm coming back home. I'm, I'm coming back to you. He, said, he lays that out in the first six verses of this particular chapter. He says, I'm coming to you. These things I speak in the world, because I'm still here, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. The world hates them, has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's a premise I want to address here that goes along with this faith characteristic or attribute. So put faith and the fact that you're not part of this world. And follow me through this now. He goes on here and he says, I've given them, uh, I pray that you should, let's see, verse 14, I'm sorry, halfway through. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world. So don't, go, you know, we're not talking about turning into monks and going up to a mountain and going, hmm, and all day look at oranges or apples or something and try to, you know, become one with a tree or that kind of stuff. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the fact that Jesus does definitely intend that we should stay in the world. He says, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, and talking about physically, but that you should keep them from the evil. Don't let the influences of the system, of the society, of the social order around them influence them negatively, counterintuitively, contrarian to what I'm explained or what I've explained to them your word is all about. That's where he's, he's uh, going with this. He continues on and he says here, verse 16, they're not of the world even as I'm not of the world. They're not of the world, as I'm not of the world, but we're in the world. I wear suits. That's part of the world. I wear particular socks, part of the world. I'm in very uh, much a style and fashion here in the West with a tie. So I'm in the world in that regard. But what's he talking about here? He's talking about the evil in the world, not to allow the nuance influences to cause you to drift or to be distracted or redirected or detoured along the way. Got to be careful about that. And so Jesus is appealing to the Father and asking him that he, verse 17 now, does this in a specific way. He says, separate them through your truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, even so, I, uh, so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sake, I'm separating myself. Jesus is saying, I'm sacrificing myself that they also might be separated. And he goes back and he reiterates through the truth. So the truth is that pork's not good for you. The truth is shellfish are hard to digest. You're better off staying away from them. They're unclean. They're dirty. So are lobsters. They're dirty. So the fact of it is you will be separated because as you go out in the world and sit down at a table in a restaurant with friends who don't share your faith, and they've got a lobster special, surf and turf, you know. Turf being the beef, I think. Isn't that how it is? Turf is the beef and the surf is the lobster. And so the fact of it is, guess what? You're going to stand out. You're going to stand out, especially if everybody's in and they're all going to buy this thing. Well, then you maybe make a tact and say, well, I'll eat the beef. You guys eat the lobster. <laughs> you know? But... Point being, it generates conversation. 
It generates conversation. Get a big sale. I've had this experience. Get a big sale. We land a big deal. Everybody brings out the old cigar. <laughs> hey, man, celebration time. Smoke that puppy up, you know. <laughs> hey, I don't smoke. I'm the temple of God. I don't bring that stuff into me, you see. So there's things here, brethren, that are important for us to recognize that we don't allow certain encroachments to skew our judgments about what is acceptable and what isn't. God has very specific, we use this word in psychology, boundaries. And those boundaries for all Christians should be protected by putting on, you've heard it, the armor of God right the armor of God Ephesians chapter 6 you put on the armor of God for what what's that all about to protect your boundaries so that you don't become subject to the encroachments influences and contrarian points of view and most importantly and where I'm gonna go with this is outlook toward life now how is this done well in Ephesians over here Ephesians chapter 4 I want to turn your attention over here Paul talking to this church lays down some criteria for identifying some of the boundaries. Here's some of the boundaries. I'm a prisoner of the Lord, he says. Therefore, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I beseech you that you walk worthy of this job. He calls it a vocation. This is a way of life. This is a particular, uh, formidable, conforming job description. He says it's a vocation wherewith you are, there's the word again, called. With all lowliness, here it goes now, here's a point of view, a, a, an approach toward life, an attitude that one should have. All lowliness and meekness, with patience, long-suffering, forbearing, I mean so much patient that you forbear one another in affection. Wow. Agape. That's the Greek. In affection. In other words, somebody just really wears on you, somebody just gets under your skin and crawls up your veins. It, I mean, they just uh, are the proverbial burr in your saddle. Paul's saying, deal with it, man. Forbear. Forbear. Do the best you can. Maybe you won't be best friends, but at least be civil and try to at least somehow, some way, uh, care for them because he says uh, uh, forbear one another in love endeavoring so in spite of the tension do the best you can to put forth an effort that's what endeavoring means to put forth an effort endeavoring to keep unity in other words keep some kind of semblance of of connection with of the spirit in the bond of peace neutrality you want to be neutral at best even with your worst enemies, be neutral if that's all you can achieve. Because that's important. That provides you a window, a doorway, a platform to operate from that should provide you to at least keep civil communications open so that there can be a window for the development of you caring for them regardless, regardless of how much tension might be between the two of you or three of you or four of you, or five of you, you know, how many there are of you. So he drops down now, for the sake of time, let me take you down over here to verse 11. He gave some apostles and prophets and some evangelists and pastors and teachers for, for what now? Okay, for the perfecting, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the education, that's what the word edifying means, of the body, that's you and me, the church. Uh, they, these are roles. They're not ranks. The evangelist is not the boss of the pastor. The, the, the apostle is not the boss of the evangelist. No, evangelism, the evangelist is an evangelist. A teacher is a teacher. I wear different hats in the church. Sometimes I wear the hat of an evangelist. Other times I wear the hat of a pastor. Sometimes I wear the hat of a teacher. But the bottom line is, my point these are functions, they're not ranks. That's an important distinction to make and an important understanding to have about the church and the way it's structured within uh, the, the community of the church itself. And this is the reason for it, for the education 
of the church. Why? Till when? Till we all come in the unity of, here's that word again, faith. Now, I'm going to come back to that word. I'm going to get more drilled in on it here in a moment. But I want you to keep in mind that faith has a lot to do with achieving what we're talking about. As a matter of fact, faith underscores in a specific way everything to do with what we're talking and achieving here. He says here in verse 13, till we all come in to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto the complete or the full of age man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And it's important we understand that. Christ's the example. I don't want you to be like me. And I don't want to be like you. <laughs> I want to be like Christ. Now, if I'm more, if I'm, if I'm more Christ-like than I was yesterday and you find it easier to identify with me because there is an incumbent responsibility on me as a pastor to set the right example as a role model, well then, more power to you if that be the case. But don't put your eyes on me because there's no guarantee I'm going to stay straight. I can fall just like any other guy. Easy. You keep your eyes on Christ. If you want to follow me, you follow me, as Paul said, as I follow Christ. When I veer off, you stay on line. If I go off the rails, you stay on the rails. Because that's important you recognize your association is with Christ, not with the CGI, not with Bill Watson, Wayne Hendricks, uh, Van Stinn, anybody. You are indeed connected to the vine. And who's the vine? Jesus. Christ. He is your master, my master, the one that I follow, the one that all of us should emulate and attempt to try to exemplify and reflect in our personalities as best we can. And so I'm here to try to help whatever I can do in clarifying and adding to the edification element for your benefit and for mine too because I'm, I've often said this, and I'll continue to say it. I'm my own best student because oftentimes I study these topics and I go way off the, off the grid uh, in many cases and hardly ever give you everything I studied about because I've got to fine-tune everything to a, an, a certain limitation of time. But be that as it may, the fact of it is all of this, the ministry itself broken out into all these functions is for the edification of the body of Christ. That we, verse 14, henceforth... Be no more children tossed to and fro. What's that all about? So that you're not fooled, that you're not scallywagged, you're not, uh, you know, shanghaied, you're not uh, confused about life and what life's all about. And so you see and begin to see from the outlook how God sees things. That's important. That's important, that you begin to see how God sees things. And so you're not carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. So it's important. It's very important, brethren, that we do the best we can uh, to to do these things. However, the sad thing about this is so often we as Christians, though we have sometimes hard times to admit this, we want to keep one foot in the church while one foot is out in the world. And I use this as a prop because you notice I'm shorter. Right? I've impinged my growth. I've stunted my growth. If I take my one foot out of the world, both in the church and I'm all in, I just gained an inch or two. I'm maximizing my potential, in this case, height. But it stands to reason, and it's rational to understand, that if you do that, you're carrying a burden. You're putting a burden on yourself in attempting to try to walk that line with one foot in and one foot out. God wants us to be single-hearted. He wants us to be focused. He wants us to be all in. That's why he's saying, remember the Laodiceans? What were they corrected for being? They were corrected for being what? Lukewarm. 
They weren't in, they weren't out. They were kind of like lukewarm coffee. You know, you spit it out because it's, it doesn't taste good. It's uh, bad. You know, it's just something that you, you, don't want to, uh, you don't want to drink. So it's important we understand that God wants us to be single-hearted so that we can properly reflect Him, exemplify Him to the maximum of our own talents and gifts. Otherwise, again, we're stunting our growth, we're dimming our light, and we're causing ourselves not to progress in the development of this little embryonic spiritual being that's been growing in us since our baptism. So let's get back now to this question about God in us and this idea about faith and how that interplays with helping us to achieve what I'm talking about, to become better reflections, because that's what I'm talking about, to become better reflections. In Hebrews chapter 11, let me draw you over here, the faith chapter. We have an important recognition here to understand that it takes a different attitude to succeed as a Christian toward life. We have to be in the world, yes. But we were told that the world should minimize or have minimal influence on us. Do not partake of the world's evils. And some of those evils, brethren, can be in style, can be in music. You get real personal about these things. Wayne Hendricks and I are doing a web chat, and we're addressing issues in the web chat about how to live in the 21st century. It's on YouTube right now. It just was released yesterday, brand new. And we go and talk about tattoos. We talk about long hair. We talk about Speedos. We talk about other things. <laughs> You'll have to tune in and see. <laughs> but we're going to do a part two. <laughs> and we're going to get into even more details about more sensitive issues about Christians living in a 21st century. Because it's not as easy anymore, is it, as we once thought. And the lines that used to be somewhat clear are getting blurred of what is right and what is wrong. Marijuana is going to be legalized. Pretty soon, it'll be legal. Some have said, Hallelujah, I've been waiting for that day. <laughs> Should a Christian engage in marijuana for recreational use? That's, that's a good question. That's a good question. I'm not talking about medical use, because the jury's still out on that. It's a lot to be talked about. We're going to talk about, that's actually one of the subjects on marijuana. Marijuana for medical use and marijuana for recreational use. Lines are being blurred. I can go into the women's uh, bathroom now because I feel different. As a Christian, should I be doing that? Or should I grab my feelings and say, no, whether you feel like a woman today or not, you're a man. Get in the men's room. I mean, we may sound like it's kind of, uh, you know, elementary, but... Brethren, there are people struggling with this stuff. And frankly, God's word sometimes is not as black and white, not as black and white as you might think. And oftentimes people will rationalize and think that, well, if it's not black and white and there's a little wiggle room or a little gray area, well, then maybe it's okay to do it a little bit. I'll just eat a little pork. A ham sandwich once a year never hurt anybody. Oh, that lobster looks so good. Well, I haven't had lobster in five years. Well, I'll just have the lobster tonight. You, you see what I'm talking about? And Jesus is saying to all of us, beware. Because as the proverbial camel's nose gets under that tent, you know, did you ever hear that story? Finally and ultimately, it doesn't take long before incrementally, and that's the subtlety of letting your boundaries be encroached, it becomes easier 
and easier to miss Sabbath services. It becomes easier and easier to miss a holy day. It becomes easier and easier to cheat on your tithes. It becomes easier and easier to say a vulgar word once in a while, where then it becomes a regular adjective. <laughs> See, these are the things we have to guard against because guess what? We may be surrounded by some pretty vulgar people where we work. And it isn't, doesn't take long before, guess what? You find yourself speaking on their level, with their language, with their words, their vocabulary, if you're not careful. If you're not careful. That's the psychology that Jesus is telling us. And where it all resides, the key to this is, brethren, here it is, how strong is your faith. How real is the vision of what you're sacrificing your life for? How real is it? Paul, uh, well, I say Paul, that's my personal opinion with regard to the writer of Hebrews, but doesn't necessarily mean it's right. So we'll just say the writer. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance. And I'm going to use the word because the Greek word here can certainly mean confidence or assurance. So let me say it that way. Now faith is the confidence or the assurance. I'm assured that my car is still out in the parking lot. I'm assured, that, you know, I have that confidence. My car is still out in the parking lot. I locked it before I came in here. I'm confident. I'm confident my shoes are tied. I still feel them. They're tight on my feet. I'm confident. You with me? I'm confident of the things hoped for and uh, for the certainty of things not seen. I know absolutely my car is blue. I'm certain that my car, well, it's kind of grayish blue. But you know what I'm saying? I'm certain of the color of my car. That's how certain I am. I am certain I am wearing, because I remember, a gray and red tie. I'm certain of it. So I've got a certain confidence that I'm certain of these things. Now, how real, in that comparison, is this idea of you being in the kingdom of God as a spirit being, living forever as a mortal who can go through walls, just like a movie. Wow, go through walls without using the door. Travel to the moon. Travel to the moon. Alyssa and I, we'll, we'll go to the moon, back and forth. In the split of a thought, my grandson and I, the other night, we were talking uh, about things, and he was asking me, well, how fast can you go when you're a spirit? And I said, I'll tell you. Tell me where you want to be. And he said, I want to be on the moon. And I said, you're there. What? I want to be on Mars. You're there. Before he even got the word Mars out. How real is this stuff to you? Is it worth giving up your Speedo for? You see what I'm saying? Is it worth not smoking? Is it worth not cutting, not cutting Sabbath? How much are you in? He says here, in verse uh, 2, for by it, that is this faith, the elders obtained a good report through faith. We understand the world was framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. In other words, everything that you see was not made by anything that you can see. You get it? So what was made and what you see is made was made by things you don't see meaning God. He's in that other realm. He's behind the curtain. He is the great Holy One and Creator, and He made the things that are seen. We're not products of evolution, lovesick amoeba. That's what your Bible just told you. Nothing that you see is the creating force. What is the creating force? 
you don't see. It's God. Over here, in Hebrews, dropping down to verse 13 now. Now, this gets down to the core of what I'm talking about with regard to this faith. These all died, and you can read who they are. That's Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham. They're all listed there in, this, in the ensuing scriptures of verses 4 through about 12. He, said, he says, the writer, These all died in faith not having received the promises. And that's reiterated over in verse 39. If you want to go look over verse 39, after he lists Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, Moses, Rahab, the harlot, and so on, and even the prophets who were sawn asunder and so forth, in verse 39, after listing all of them, he says, again, these all having obtained a good report through faith did not receive the promises. They're still dead. They have not been awarded eternal life yet. What other people do with these scriptures? I don't know, but it's pretty clear to us, isn't it? So they're still all dead in the grave. Moses, Jacob, Abraham, Rahab the harlot, all of them. They're all still dead in the grave. He goes on now, back to 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, verse 13, but having seen them afar off, and that's what I'm talking about, and were persuaded of them and embraced them, confessed, here it is, brethren, here's the outlook you should have. I trust perhaps you even may have heard this during the Feast of Tabernacles. Embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly they're seeking another country. Now notice this next verse. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from where they came out or where they came from, they might have had opportunity to have returned. What's that talking about? That's talking about the guy with the one foot in and the one foot out. I'll never forget this statement made back when Margie and I were searching for the truth, way back when, before we were connected with God's tr uh, truth or church. And we went to Rex Humbard down here to Akron, Ohio. And I'll never forget this statement. It stuck with me. He said, you, never can't, you can't go forward looking in the rearview mirror. You can't go forward looking in the rearview mirror. We learned that in the days of unleavened bread, don't we? We've got to get out of Egypt. We've got to leave that Egypt behind and move forward with a renewed outlook predicated on our faith in the vision we understand that represents the new country, the new country that we're aspiring to get in. Now, the more real that becomes, hopefully the easier it is to deal with the circumstances, stresses, tensions, pressures, influences, temptations we find ourselves surrounded by and encroached on through the course of our lives. But if we don't have that faith, and that's why I'm saying this word faith is very important. It is a key to the development of your successful endeavoring of accomplishing your Christian walk. And the fact of the outlook being that that faith draws you to understand you're seeking another country. And it says in verse 16, but now they desire a better country. You don't want to look back as verse 15 was talking about. But now they desire a better country that is in a heavenly. It's heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And we can go on and on, brethren, about this idea of faith and how important it is. Turn with me real quickly here as we begin to close this over in uh, Romans chapter 5. Now, we read this scripture in our study as we were going through Romans 5. Uh, but let me remind us of this back in verse 1, chapter 5, book of Romans. We read, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory. So faith is a major ingredient. It's a major cog in the wheel. It is the, what you could say, most prominent nut and bolt, uh, very critical adhesion 
uh, brick and mortar for you to have in your walk with Christ because it provides you the belief that you have, in gra- you have grace with God. It provides you hope that you have indeed a, a chance to achieve immortality. And it helps you to define the objective, the objective of what you are working for. You're saved by grace. That's your faith. You're saved by grace. But you are rewarded by works. And just because you're called doesn't mean you're in. Keep that in mind. Once saved, always saved? No. No. We have to exercise our faith and thereby prove our faith by our behavior. That's what James says. I'm not making it up. Verse chapter 2, the book of James chapter 2. Read it. It'll remind you of that relationship between, between works and faith. So here you have this relationship of that, and I don't have the time to go to um, Colossians 1, verses 21 through 29, but that's a, a, another very good uh, area to read in regards to this theme that I'm uh, talking about uh, today. So in Second Peter, what I want to leave you with, and I've got one more scripture after this, but I want to draw your attention here to Second Peter because it's important again to recognize that he reinforces this idea of this outlook. And in chapter 2, I'm sorry, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 9 we read, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar, or the Greek word could mean purchased. You're a purchased people that you should show forth virtues, praises, virtues of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past you were not his people, you were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech, I'm appealing to you as strangers, there he goes, this is Peter now, not Paul, as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. We have just come through a New Year's. The Feast of Trumpets was a New Year's. Let me remind you. It's the civil New Year, not the religious New Year. That's we know to be Abib the, four, uh, the, Abib the first back in Passover, the religious New Year. But you have an opportunity again to draw another line in the sand with regards to really making commitments in your faith. Make a commitment, brethren, to be more committed and sustained in your faith. Make a more highly, more intense sense of dedication to this faith that God has given you the privilege of being able to recognize and have. It's so very important, especially in this day and age when things become so consuming that we sometimes forget that the most important thing in our lives, it trumps, pardon the the pun, but it trumps everything. And that's your pursuit to enter into the kingdom of God. Without that, you have nothing. You have nothing. I don't care if America unleashes everything she's got and becomes the shining star on the hill of the globe, planet Earth, and we all live in paradise. You still have nothing because you're going to die. We are all in bondage. Christ is truly the key to keeping this life in perspective. Don't let this life defocus you. Don't let it cause you to go through life in certain areas where you allow certain things to become more important to you than God. Don't let anything throw you off course, lest you end up finding yourself compromised at some point to a certain extent, and again, shortening your stature 
to where you're not as tall as you could be, strong as you could be, committed as you could be. Romans 13, last scripture I promise. Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. You see that colon? That's a statement. That's a statement. There is no power but of God. God supersedes everything. The powers that be, the Donald Trumps, the Merkels, those other world leaders, the Trudeaus in Canada, the Dirties in the Philippines, these, it says here, the powers that be are ordained of God. They are ordered of God. Whosoever therefore resists the power, that is, of the, of the uh, states, of course, resists the ordinance of God. Again, illustrating God supersedes. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. So, in addition... Keep in mind, we need to pray for our leaders. Pray for their protection. Pray for their wisdom. Pray that God and His order, His allowance of those that are in certain roles, are indeed benevolent, oriented toward the benefit of the people that they, they serve, and continue to abide by at least values and standards as much as possible as they recognize this book to espouse and to teach. Brethren, pray for our leaders because God has ordained the world the way we see it today.